This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zakheim, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Reagan Institute Policy Director Rachel Hoff sits down with Dr. Jerry McGinn, who serves as the executive director of the Greg and Camille Baroni Center for Government Contracting in the School of Business at George Mason University. They discuss the defense industrial base, working with allies on transnational industrial cooperation to alleviate global supply issues like those seen in Ukraine, and ongoing hurdles faced by America's defense industry. Well, hello and welcome to Reaganism. I'm your guest host, Rachel Hoff, Policy Director here at the Reagan Institute, and I'm very pleased to be joined by today's guest, Dr. Jerry McGinn. Jerry, welcome to Reaganism. Great to be with you, Rachel. Jerry, you lead the Baroni Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University's School of Business. And before that, you served uh, in particular in government at the DOD, um, working on manufacturing and industrial base issues. We'll get into all those uh, issues here as we move forward in our conversation, but in particular, both at DOD and in your role at George Mason, you've done a lot of work related to revitalizing American manufacturing and in particular, our defense industrial base or the DIB. Um, and in my mind, and, and I'm sure for a lot of our listeners, that really aligns with kind of a broader conversation that's been happening in our country for some time around the loss of American manufacturing jobs. Every election year, it seems like candidates on both sides of the aisle, frankly, Talk about bringing jobs back to America. Talk about reshoring American jobs. It's kind of maybe even a rare form of, of bipartisan agreement in these polarized times. Reviving American manufacturing and reshoring jobs is something that both Presidents Biden and Trump talked quite a lot about uh, during their time in office. So I thought to set the stage for our conversation today, I'd ask you to talk a little bit about that broader conversation on manufacturing and connect the dots to your work in particular on the defense industrial base and how that fits in to this conversation around reviving manufacturing and reshoring jobs. Yeah, no, it's a it's a really important topic, Rachel, and I'm honored to be here with you and the Reagan Institute and your listeners talk to talk about it. Yeah, this is not a uh, kind of a new um, issue in, in the sense that you know as we grew up in you know uh, or some of us um, older folks like myself grew up during the Reagan era uh, and 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 you know subsequent uh, years and there was a trend where a lot of um, Manufacturing did leave the United States, and you know a lot of the um, uh, the the global economic system became very very prevalent, um, particularly through the 1990s and 2000s, and that led to kind of a lot of kind of manufacturing leaving the U.S. and going to where it was more optimally or cost efficient to be done, uh, and um, and so now we're in a period where, as you rightly point out, that there's sort of been a recognition that maybe we've gone too far for that. Um, and, um, you know, interestingly, there's a lot of manufacturing that has stayed here, particularly in the defense world. There's a lot that's stayed here and it was always done here, but a lot of uh, manufacturing did leave. And so now there is a conversation of what do we bring back um, and, uh, you know, how much can be sustainable in the marketplace? And some of the work that I did when I was in the Pentagon during, um, during the Obama and Trump years, we looked at that. We looked at 
um, across the, the the U.S. government? What were the areas where um, we were where manufacturing had left, and what were the capabilities, the areas where we needed to have um, more U.S. manufacturing? Um, and uh, sort of prioritize those because you can't bring it all back at all at once. And so you know you want to kind of um, you know look at it in um, you know see what makes the most sense. And where are those key sectors? Where you know when we think about um, you know jobs that have left, manufacturing that's left over time, and as we think about prioritizing uh, manufacturing that that we do need to bring back. In your best assessment, having worked in these issues both in and out of government, how do we identify those key sectors? Yeah, no, I think there have been a couple of um, uh, government reviews done by both the Trump and Biden administrations, as you mentioned, uh, kind of the bipartisan focus on this. And they they found very similar things. You know, you found a lot of the manufacturing areas where um, are have been gone are areas that are kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better term, dirty, you know, kind of mining uh, areas, which were, you know, very kind of labor intensive uh, and, um, you know, environmentally kind of harmful. Um, and these are things like the mining of rare earth metal and uh, processing of rare earth metals, specialty chemicals, explosives. Um, and so, and, you know, so, but some of these capabilities um, migrated to specific areas of concern, like the for instance, China um, set an industrial policy to to corner the market on a lot of these manufacturing areas, uh, robotics, rare earth processing, and so on. And they've made substantial progress with those. And um, and um, and we just kind of let the market forces play out. And so you know, so the work that we did in in government was to identify those. And and most of those are some of the areas we're kind of making a lot of investments in. And it's microelectronics. It's um, robotics processing kind of, um, 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 and, uh, you know, things like mining and, and the like that, uh, you know, and then we're trying to now prioritize kind of what is most important to, to reshore. When you think about both those high-tech, uh, manufacturing capabilities and even sort of, um, what listeners might think of as old school, traditional weapons platforms that are, are useful in, and necessary in times of war, um, when we look to the war in Ukraine, um, there are lots of assessments that show that in many ways, the U.S. defense industrial base producing materiel for that war, uh, in many ways, our defense industrial base seems to be at capacity, supporting both our peacetime requirements here at home and also Ukraine's wartime needs. Yeah. Um, what's your assessment of what what kinds of investments the U.S. needs to make to meet our own industrial base needs and demands and in particular to, you know, support any future defense requirements and make sure we're able to make what we need or what we might need. That's a great question. Um, and uh, if you think about it, in uh, President Reagan's time, we were spending uh, about 6% of our gross domestic product on defense. Today, we're spending half of that, about 3%. So the, the level of resources devoted towards defense spending is half of that of, um, you know, and you had the pacing challenge in the Cold War era of, you know, of the Soviet Union. Uh, and so that drove um, the resources devoted to the industrial base uh, capacity developed uh, for those kind of that, that kind of threat. So you had a lot more industrial capacity. So during the 90s and the 2000s, the focus shifted to 
maintaining defense cap- you know, capabilities to meet the challenges uh, of that time, but there was just much less capacity. There was a big focus on efficiencies, manufacturing processes, just-in-time kind of delivery of systems that were commercial um, kind of practices, um, and but the uh, defense adopted them to try to get the most out of the taxpayer dollar. So the motivation was, you know, trying to get the most out of the defense dollar, but you just had less resources. So as you mentioned in, in Ukraine, you saw that that makes the defense industrial base not have a capacity to surge when um when it's it, it, when a when a contingency like that arises so you've got where you're producing just for the um the amount that's budgeted or resourced and you don't have any flexibility and so we we were sort of caught on we were not ready for that um and um and it's it's a real wake up call for um our forces for in our defense industrial base and that's been a major focus um for the for government and industry um in, in the you know in the past year plus yeah that reliant on reliance on just in time manufacturing you know that that model works when you can meet existing or immediate near term demands uh you know it it makes sense for for you know, commercial companies like the Walmarts of of the world, uh, but it, it's hard to square the circle of how that makes sense for the military, um, and that's really been revealed here here with the war in Ukraine in particular. And even what if you- I can if I can interrupt, even I think even commercially, I think that sort of has been the 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 absolute value of that has been called into question. And from COVID, you know, from the COVID situation, we saw just in time can be not in time, you know? So, so, so there's sort of, so it's sort of a two-step thing. Like COVID has shown kind of the, you know, the challenges of those models. Uh, and then Ukraine has definitely showed that for on the defense side, but I'm absolutely sorry. great, great point. And, and now that we've seen those shortcomings firsthand, but frankly in the commercial space and, and the defense space, what do we do to pivot away from that model, particularly for, for, uh, for defense? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think the, the first thing we need to do is we need to look at areas where we are vulnerable um, to adversaries. And what I mean by that is that, and this is what we did in our government, in the government work, is we looked at where, what are the industrial capabilities where we are in sole source situation or we're, we're really dependent or reliant on China, really, or, you know, or threat countries like that. And there are a number of areas where that that situation we identified that, and this was you know pre-pandemic um, era. This is looking at, and these are areas that you've seen a lot in the press: or rare earth processing, specialty chemicals, um, or semiconductors, and you know, and not surprisingly, that's been where the investment has been going on the government side. Not very, you know. Probably not as fast as it needs to happen, but but you know, the, those are the uh, so the first thing is what I like to say is get out of the China business. So that, so and that's been the priority uh, of, um, of uh, the government and both the Trump and Biden administrations. And I think it's the right kind of thinking. One part of getting out of this is, is uh, likely to be working more closely with our allies and partners. You recently published a report called a build allied approach to increase industrial base capacity. Um, you highlight some of 
the need, the reason behind, you know, why this approach um, is necessary for building our our broad defense industrial base together with our allies and partners, how we can be more integrative and integrated and collaborative um, with those allies and partners around the world. Um, We'll get a, a little bit more into your specific uh, findings and recommendations of the report. But to start, why isn't this something that the U.S. can go at alone? Why do we need allies and partners um, to do what needs to be done um, with, with regard to having a robust and resilient industrial base? Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's a great question, and you know, I think technically we could take it a, a completely go it alone approach, you know, which is sort of in economic terms an, like an autarkic approach. But the fact of the matter is, we have a global economic system, uh, and we trade with um, countries across the world, and there's tremendous benefits in terms of cost and price for the of that global marketplace. And um, there, you know, and we produce a lot in the United States, and I think manufacturing has, has is increasing, it has to increase in some areas. But there are a lot of areas where we don't where we can, you know, we can sort of have it, we, we can do it here. And, you know, there's a there's a, a, a big enough pie that you we can uh, that we can buy from allies and it may be more cost effective. You know, it might be more effective to do some uh, manufacturing in uh, Mexico and in partner or in Canada, you know, the, so the, you know, th this is not an either or situation. The focus in my view should be kind of, let's get out of the kind of the China business, so to speak, and then let's build up capabilities. And the, the, the reason why that's important is it benefits all kind of the industrial base, which is we're already, I mean, we already have tremendous um, uh, manufacturing inputs to our defense systems that are from, "Quote unquote non-U.S. sources. I mean, and it's you know these are close allies, NATO partners, and close allies around the world. So you know, so um, it benefits them. It benefits our industrial base, and it benefits their industrial base as well. I mean, many of these companies, um, like British headquarters companies, have big U.S. subsidiaries here with sixty thousand employees and the like. So, so it, it's um, it makes sense to uh, friendshore or nearshore." or in addition to building domestic um, manufacturing capacity. In terms of your specific findings and recommendations, what did the report reveal uh, about what's working with international, with regards to international cooperation on industrial base issues? What's working and then where do we need to, to improve? Right. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I, I think what's working is that, you know, we are doing it. So if you know the largest defense program in the world is the the F-35 fighter uh, jet, which is, you know, used by U.S. forces um, um, all around the world. But it's it's also used by um, a, a tremendous number of um, uh, international partners, the, the Israelis, the, the the Brits, the Australians, um, the Canadians are buying, the, 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 the Dutch in the Norwegians, all, all, lots of the Japanese. So and, and these these fighter jets are made um, in all the parts come from all around the world uh, and the um, it is actually produced and there's a, a final assembly and checkout facility in Fort Worth, Texas, but there's also one in Japan and there's also one in Italy. So you have 
Um, you have uh, these uh, com- you know companies from different countries involved to support the U.S. Um, forces as well as um, allied uh, partner allies and partner um, military. So it's it's a win-win industrial-based approach that uh, develops our capabilities and our partners. And these are the folks that the country, countries that we go to war with and we engage with um, on the military basis. And then where where do we need to be uh, more collaborative? Where's the room for for improvement with regard to international partnerships on industrial base? Yeah, I think the big thing is is that um, we do this, but it's it's much too hard today um, and harder than it needs to be. So we have, for instance, if you look at um, our closest allies, uh, the the Australians and the British, arguably, they the, right now we share the most sensitive intelligence with them to support military operations. They operate. We share. Um, you know, they operate on our classified networks. Uh, but when it comes to um, uh, equipment, it's much more uh, kind of there's difficult. There's export control laws that govern kind of how you transfer equipment. It just makes everything much harder. Uh, and so to 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 really get after this, uh, to really operate together um, like we need to to <laughs> face our contingencies, we need to improve how we do export controls um, and uh, our technology transfer. And those are things that actually are being considered uh, on Capitol Hill and by the administration. And th- you have a very supportive environment today for this in the wake of Ukraine because they see that we have, um, you know, uh, uh, we have a real kind of growing threat, you know, um, in not only in Europe, uh, but in on the in, uh, in in the Asia Pacific theater. Uh, but and but we um, we don't have the capacity to be able to do those. And so it's better to work with our partners and allies. So you just see a, cre- uh, a lot more kind of um, attention on that. Uh, and now we just need to we need to improve how we're able to do that practically in terms of te- technology transfer, as well as some of our internal um Department of Defense kind of acquisition processes. I want to talk more about some of those specific recommendations and, and pull the thread on on uh, some of the topics you just raised. But at a theoretical level, when you talk about all these barriers to international cooperation and, and what's kind of standing in the way, your report has a great quote around the, the broad environment for interna- international industrial cooperation. You say the environment itself is incredibly strong with robust administration leadership, bipartisan congressional support, and increased allied defense investments to address defense industrial capacity shortfalls. So if we've got the political leadership uh, from the administration, from the White House, bipartisan congressional or bipartisan administrations, as you mentioned, if we've got bipartisan support as well in Congress, um, if we have our allies ready to do more, um, why is this so hard? That's a great question. I mean, um, I'll I'll go back to the the issue of export controls. Okay, so uh, this is an issue um, that um, has been tried three times in the past 20 plus years to improve how we just just with the Australians and the British, how we do um, our technology transfers and it's failed um, twice. And this is the third time. And and the reason why is it is technically difficult. Uh, in terms of there are a few people that understand it, and there are there are substantial kind of um, bureaucratics, uh, you know, one way to put it, to kind of interests that you know that you know that want to keep the 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 environment the way it it uh, has been, right? But but to really get to where 
where the political leaders are, we have to make these substantive changes. You know, because what's happened is, is um, there are a couple of agreements uh, that have been um, established in the past several years. One is this national technology industrial base, which was established back in 2017 when I was in government. And then the current Australia-UK-US partnership, or AUKUS, and these, um, these and, agreements- And TIB and AUKUS for people tracking acronyms at home. <laughs> and so I'll try not to bring too many more acronyms in it, but those I got to bring in. So, but those two uh, agreements, um, you know, are, are state the high level kind of principles. But to be honest, in the last several years, the NTIB has sort of been spectacularly unsuccessful in terms of practical industrial cooperation operation that's resulted from those. And there's a concern that AUKUS, which was signed more recently, um, you know, is not going to have that same kind of impact. So that's why AUKUS, you know, they have to get some concrete results in terms of technology transfer changes, um, as well as I, I would argue in defense acquisition changes um, to achieve those, to achieve those results. And those are, and those require some, you know, just practical um, you know, guidance from, you know, that goes from not from the, the the departmental leadership across the department to say, I need you to look at this acquisition practice more closely so we can partner with allies at the front end of programs, because that will be beneficial for all of us um, and much more cost effective in time than doing it, you know, when we're in a crisis. Mm -hmm. So these kind of things, um, and that's what the recommendations are about is, you know, I wanted to make, I think what we need to make is make international industrial collaboration a core component of the defense acquisition system. Right now it's there, but it's not something that is, you know, front of mind um, to the folks building our systems, um, you know, in, in around the country. Yeah, I remember you learning a few years ago um, that even for the closest of our allies in the United Kingdom, as you mentioned, uh, the percentage of the, the UK defense budget that they spend simply on complying with our defense acquisition rules and regulations, laws and requirements is is uh, more than it seems like it should be, let's say. Yeah. Um, so you've mentioned export control uh, reform. Um uh, you've mentioned kind of, you know, the more robust international partnerships building on what we have in, in terms of the, the existing, uh, some, some older, some newer frameworks for international cooperation with NTIB and AUKUS. Any other recommendations that you'd highlight from the report in terms of what the U.S. administration, Congress, industry could be doing to, to help break down some of these barriers? Yeah, no, great. I mean, I think there's two more kind of big recommendations. Yeah, so one is on the defense acquisition systems. Another one is on these tech transfer kind of technology transfer areas and export controls and foreign disclosure. Um, and then there's there's a need of, for education. So uh, in the in the sense that uh, the benefits of, to the U.S. industrial base of international um, industrial collaboration is not well known. You know, there's a big focus on building domestic capacity, which is great. But that often translates into you have to buy America only, right? And the fact of the matter is, is that in the defense space, manufacturing is already heavily U.S. focused. It's already, you know, uh, there's already buy America requirements for domestic content. Some of this is the most sensitive technology areas. So it's already built in kind of the, the U.S. Um, but the impact of... Um, the industrial base impact of of um, of our partners now needs to be better understood. I mean, the fact that 
um, that UK companies, for instance, contribute 60,000 US jobs and hundreds of millions of dollars to the US industrial base is not widely known. And what I would like to do is I recommend that we do that um, the countries that are our closest allies that have uh, agreements with us on, on defense procurement, that we do an analysis on their contributions of their companies. This is kind of companies like Fin Mechanica um, or Leonardo is the term. It's a, it's a U, Italian headquartered company that has U.S. facilities. Um, and there are you know, tons of companies from all kinds of our partners and allies that have U.S. subsidiaries. What are, they, what are they producing in the U.S.? How many jobs does that impact? What kind of revenue is that? Because that shows... To the to your listeners, it shows the members of Congress. It shows to the public that wow, you know, the concrete benefits to U.S. in terms of jobs and manufacturing of partnering with companies that you know aren't necessarily headquartered here, but you know they work with us and they kind of go to war with us is really beneficial. So I, that's one thing that I needs uh, that needs to be better understood. Um, and then the the last agreement set of recommendations around. Kind of, we need to scale some of um, you know our um, efforts that we have in industrial co uh, international co cooperation, so they can really have a big impact. Because right now we do these small programs um, where we partner with you know a specific country and then move on. But we could, um, there are ways where we could do this more uh, kind of more robustly. So we're 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 building industrial capacity, you know, this is, you know, that can surge uh, when we need it um, by partnering with countries and allies, you know, that are close allies. So I, that's kind of the, the the last big set of recommendations. I Your Build Allied report highlights that our own latest national defense strategy references working with allies and partners 32 times. Um, you've talked about a couple, you know, uh, challenges with working with with closest allies. You talk about frameworks that we have in place to do so. Um, when you know that the national defense strategy from 2022 from the Biden administration and back to um, the previous uh, Trump administration's national defense strategy, both identify China as our pacing threat. Speak a bit to any unique challenges or opportunities that you see with regard to working with allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific region to meet that rising China threat. Um, we don't have a structure like we have with NATO in Europe in the Indo-Pacific, so we're kind of on, they call it a hub and spoke system where we're working with Australia. You mentioned AUKUS, we're working with Japan, you know, we're working with other allies in the region. What are the challenges and opportunities that you see in that in that region in particular to to do what the NDS says um, uh, 32 times to work work more closely with these allies and partners? Yeah, I love that you I love that you pulled that quote, Rachel. That's one of my favorites in the report report because, you know, and you know the the Trump administration as well, and mentioning allies and partners, right? And I think that's right. But the question, the, the whole genesis of this report is like, okay, what does that mean? How can we practically do better? And and that's what we're focused focused on in, in our report and and in the recommendations. With respect to Asia uh, Asia Pacific, you're right. The challenges are significant, and it makes the kind of the importance of partnerships uh, that much more because of the supply chain challenges, the um, uh, the sustainment challenges, and the like. And that's um, and that's one of the things when I like I mentioned the F-35 program, for instance. 
um, in developing that program, um, th that fighter jet, one of the, the final assembly and checkout facilities is in, in Japan. And interestingly, beyond that, um, the uh, they've also made that facility into a, a sustainment facility. So therefore, you've got a facility in the in the theater where countries, you know, this is not the U.S., Australia, um, um, Singapore is going to get the F thirty five, and and other countries in region, uh, Korea, uh, they can they can have their uh, aircraft sustained in theater. So developing kind of concepts to do that, um, uh, and supply chain challenges, and and then how do we where do we manufacture um, certain systems? Where do we develop a second source? Uh, for manufacturing in maybe Australia and the like, so those are the kind of the the, the practical things that that um, um, the department is focusing on, and uh, what will be critical for our challenges. Because as you've, I'm no doubt have seen in unclassified kind of war game scenarios, we're looking at potential conflict. God forbid in Asia Pacific, you know, we'll be out of fighter jets in a week or two, um, and uh, so the the ability to kind of uh, you know, maintain, sustain a fight in that region is going to be really challenging and will require all the industrial might that we have in the United States, but it will also require us to really work closely with our allies and partners in the region. Well, your report's been such a contribution to, you know, particularly this question around around working more more closely with our allies and partners on industrial cooperation. Thanks for the work on it. Definitely encourage listeners to check it out on uh, on, on your website. Um, I, I, we have a few minutes left, and I can't resist uh, bringing in a piece of research or a report that we put out here at the Reagan Institute as well and, and asking a quick reaction from you. Um, we've been deeply involved, as you know, in, in policy work on, on similar issues. We published a report um, called A Manufacturing Renaissance that looks at boosting U.S. competitiveness uh, for national security. And then earlier this year, we put out uh, what we call the National Security Innovation Base report card. Uh, the innovation base, of course, you know, inclusive of everything we've been talking about on, on the traditional defense industrial base, and then also including um, kind of the, the more emerging tech type companies um, uh, and how, how they contribute to, um, to our broader innovation and industrial base as well. We published this report card to, to really take a look at that ecosystem measure its health, its its resilience, its effectiveness. Um, and one of the things that we graded, we did letter grades across 10 different indicators important to this ecosystem. One of the things we graded was international cooperation. We gave it a C minus. What do you think of that grade? Where would where would you put uh, international cooperation in terms of how how we're doing and uh, with regard to to, you know, stacked up against where we need to be? Man, I wouldn't want to have you in school. I got to say, you guys are tough, <laughs> tough graders. Um, no, I think um, you know. I think there, there's definitely room to grow for uh, international um, uh, cooperation and, and how uh, we the government does it and how we how we enable it. Um, I mean, I would. I, I think I would put it um, at, at the policy level. We're up in the A minus um, range, and we haven't always been there, but we are there now. I think it's the strongest environment since immediately after 9-11, to be honest. Um, but I think at that practical implementation level, I'd put it more kind of in the C, B minus kind of range, um, because I just think we are underperforming. We are um, 
uh, under optimize. We are not kind of, you know, doing uh, humming on all cylinders. And I, and I think part of this is a capacity issue, which is not just international. This is our industrial base, which I'm sure your 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 grades were probably similar across domestic manufacturing. So I, I think we. Um, so I, there's definitely a lot of room to grow, and I think we need to. Um, it's imperative for us to do this because we cannot be. We cannot be in a situation where we have a contingency in Asia Pacific and we're kind of having this Ukraine kind of challenge with our uh, supply chain and industrial base. We need to address this now um, and we need to uh, build our defense industrial base manufacturing uh, uh, domestically. But I think uh, building, bringing our allies and partners into this to help us overall um, will will help will help in, for will help the, the the cause for both domestically and as um, as an, as an allies and that's how we go to war that's how we fight um, and um, I think that's what needs is the way the path for the future. I think you're exactly right to paint that kind of distinction between where we are in policy, where we are in political rhetoric, even, um, which would be a much higher grade. And then and then walking the walk in addition to talking the talk is where where that grade gets pulled down. And to your point, you know, there there's a lot of in infrastructure around uh, industrial co cooperation. There's ways that we can build on that, make it deeper, make it more real. We can and should do that. And then bridging into the innovation and broader technology questions. Uh, you know, we need to modernize uh, some of those partnerships as well and and uh, think about think about what they mean beyond just traditional defense capabilities, but to innovation and R&D um, and broadening our industrial base to include allies and partners. Great, great point there at the end, too, about we this is how we go to war and it's how we need to how we need to prepare. Jerry, uh, we end our podcast each week with uh, our lightning round questions. Um, we ask you to share with our listeners your favorite Reagan book, uh, your favorite book on President Reagan, your favorite quote from President Reagan, or your favorite speech by President Reagan. You can do three, two, or just one. What do you have to share with us today? So I'll, I'll give you three. I, I think my, my favorite book was, uh, I think it was by... Um, it was um, it's called the, at the right moment, um, which was a book about the 1966 gubernatorial election. I think by um, I, I forget the historian's name uh, that that was really talked about how Reagan's rise um, to be governor um, at the state of California at that time, and and uh, how kind of his how he became the 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 politician that he he, he then burst on the national scene. So that's a great book. Peggy Noonan's book on Reagan is wonderful as well. Um, I think um, my favorite speech from him uh, is is it has to be the um, uh, Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall um, speech. I was I was at West Point during that period. I graduated West Point in uh, 1990, um, and uh, so I saw the Cold War, the Berlin Wall, literally collapse before my eyes. I mean, in my spring break in 1990, I went to Berlin. I got a hammer. And I went to the Berlin Wall and I chipped off a piece, which I still have in my office. And my, um, and that just um, the the ability of, uh, to see that collapse so fast um, and to have have his impact, um, you know, the, by just calling the, a spade a spade in that speech was I, I, I thought tremendous. And I guess the final thing is um, um, uh, is when I saw him. I don't remember his speech, but he came and addressed he uh, addressed the Corps of Cadets when I was um, uh, a first, you know, his last year in 
1988 before he left office and just, you know, being able to um, parade in front of the president of the United States. And um, it was a, a unique honor. Well, an owner of a piece of history, a, a piece of the Berlin Wall that you that you knocked down yourself. Very, very cool story there. And and I'll look up his his 1988 speech to, to your class at West Point as well. Dr. Mary, Jerry McGinn, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you all for listening. Great. Thanks, Rachel. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend. 